0: You know, Eldridge Clevers one time wrote in Soul and Ice that the heavyweight champion is the two-fisted testing ground of masculinity in America. And the heavyweight champion as a symbol is the real Mr. American.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Tourist Information. My guest this week is Randy Roberts, who is a distinguished professor of history at Purdue University. He's also written several Pulitzer Prize-nominated biographies on boxers. They include Jack Dempsey, Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis. He wrote about the Mike Tyson trial. He wrote about Charles Lindbergh, John Wayne, uh, just a fascinating guy. And he also worked on a book called Blood Brothers with co-author Johnny Smith. That was the basis for a new documentary on Netflix, by the same name. And Roberts has been in a lot of Ken Burns documentaries. I think that's where I first encountered him before I started reading his books. He's just somebody very, very special in the realm of biographers, which are one of my favorite class of people. I just find them so fascinating. I love people who are fascinated (laughs) in things and obsessed with things. So Randy's one of those and he has just been so illuminating throughout his career on these incredible characters and what they represent and the backdrops in which they lived. Uh, I know very few writers who are able to transport you into the times that he is able to do through such rigorous research and uh so this was a fun conversation it was fun to catch up with one of these people i've admired so much since i was a little kid so i hope you enjoy my conversation with randy roberts this week's guest on tourist information so the mike tyson trial um that was a big deal to me when I was a teenager. I, I wonder, what drew you to it to begin with?
0: Well, to begin with, it was in Indiana. It was close to where right. I was. Right. Uh, you know, I, It was one of the most sensational trials ever, probably, for an athlete before the O.J. Simpson trial. I mean, it, it pales in significance with the O.J. trial, but it was, it was a big deal. The whole issue of date rape was something it was it was on the, the the it was on the American consciousness. Uh, you know, the William Kennedy Smith trial had just taken place. People were talking about it. People were talking about this sort of thing. Uh, and you know, I I followed boxing all my life. You know, I I followed the sensational career of Mike Tyson. I mean, he was. He was just an an amazing fighter an amazing personality an amazing story i mean he was an ongoing story and so it kind of came in my wheelhouse and i remember talking to a person a lawyer in lafayette indiana and i said you know that's a that's a good story whoever's going to tell great garrison's story uh you know that's that's who was the prosecutor of the case um good that's going, it's going to be a good story to tell and he said well i i know greg garrison you want me to make the introductions i said oh i'm sure he's already got somebody well it turned out we met he didn't and we decided to do the book together hmm.
1: yeah i found greg garrison fascinating i remember specifically that argument that he posed at the trial about you're going to hear about a woman who exercised bad judgment But if you were somebody in a bad neighborhood walking down an alley at four o'clock in the morning with a Rolex watch and you get robbed, is it any less of a crime?
0: Yeah,
1: Um, exactly. So with with that trial, um, you know, I remember Alan Dershowitz called it the the biggest miscarriage of justice in the history of his legal career. Um, Do you feel like there was a, a kind of dissonance between what was actually transpiring in the trial versus the perception of it?
0: Uh, Now, I didn't sit in on the trial. I I read the entire transcript, and I followed the trial, but I wasn't in the courtroom. But, you know, but no. I mean, Dershowitz, of course, was the uh, appeals uh, lawyer that Tyson hired, so you you would expect statements like that to come out from from a person's lawyer. Um, No. Uh, You know, I, I, I got to know Gray really well, and I know... That he believed 100% in his case. I mean, this wasn't—he wasn't doing his case for publicity or anything. He believed in the case, I and mean, he was hired as a special prosecutor. And oftentimes, special prosecutors are hired because regular prosecutors don't want to take the case because they think it's—you know—maybe it's not going to be a good case. Uh, he and his co-counsel did a—you know—a fabulous job on that case. I thought.
1: Um, in in regard to the way that a lot of Tyson's fans, like the the misogyny that was directed at Desiree Washington, where she almost had to go into hiding, it seems like. I don't think she's done any kind of publicity beyond Barbara Walters, that interview she gave then. Um, I, I'm pretty sure she got a lot of death threats for the, for the trial, and yet she had a pretty unimpeachable character in many respects.
0: I, you know, as far as i know you're absolutely right i don't think she has done anything besides that barbara walters that came out immediately after the trial you know she she never there's never been a book that i know of that she's written there's never been major interviews she's done she has sought no publicity for the trial i i think uh i think she she was a, uh, a person as you said that you know made a bad decision but even the decision I can understand. I mean, it's sort of, you're with the heavyweight champion of the world. You're with a public person. You, you just don't expect this stuff to happen. He's come on up to my hotel room. I need to get something Oh, okay. You know, you just, you're just going with the flow. Um, and I wasn't in the hotel room obviously, but uh, you know, she, she she had a compelling story and a mm-hmm. compelling personality.
1: When Tyson said, "I am innocent of this crime," but I, I believe he said to um, Jim Gray, "But I have been guilty of five or six things far worse than that which I'm accused." Um, it's a very strange confession. If he's trying to elicit sympathy for the injustice of this trial,
0: yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, I've done it before. No, I'm saying Tyson's not yeah. saying that he raped. You know, I've I've done all these crimes. But I didn't do this one, okay? You know, I'm not being tried for the other ones. I'm running, this one, I'm—I'm I'm innocent here. I'm innocent
1: here. Uh, hardly a compelling logic. Well, and and just this bizarre parallel and symmetry with Ali in terms of losing three and a half years of his athletic prime. It was in- interesting connective tissue with Ali in that respect to their careers, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was. Um, as as fighters, both of them came back as different fighters, mm-hmm. you know, completely different fighters. Ali came back and he was more apt to be flat-footed, he was more apt to take punches, He, you know, the, he, he, he could go into the old alley but only for short periods of time. Um, Tyson was always a combination. I mean the the, the customado's method, the way he taught, the way he instructed boxings, the way he, he, he got his fighters to go with out of the bob and the weave that we've seen so often with a series of punches from different angles. And when Tyson came back, and seemed more inclined to be a straightforward fighter instead of looking for the angles on either side and load up with one big punch. And you know, he was he was just a very different fighter. To me, mike tyson in his prime seemed almost undefensible i don't know how any heavyweight could stay in the ring because he came in he, he, you know he, he had just his balance was just extraordinary his hands were fast he moved in and if if you missed a punch he was on you and and the fight was virtually over right i don't know what do you what, what do you think
1: Oh, I think you're, you're ab- I think you're absolutely right. I think the Tyson who fought Michael Spinks, you know, the trouble that Ali had with Joe Frazier, it's hard not to see Tyson being a much more advanced model that's bigger, stronger, faster, far better defensively, and is a pressure counter puncher. He's often mistaken, I think, as being a puncher early on because of these tremendous yeah. knockouts, it's because we're watching above the waist rather than below the waist that was setting up those tremendous punches.
0: Exactly. And and he, he had it with both hands. That too. Uh, you know, it was Frazier problem, but you know, Frazier was a great fighter. I'm not taking anything away from Me neither. Fraser. But yeah, but I don't think he had it with the, that he could do it with both hands. Uh, and you know, part of that I think was different management, different trainers. You know, that the, the, they didn't insist that Tyson do it the way that he was, you know, instructed early on. But, you know, two different fighters. Did you? How much
1: access did you have to Tyson himself?
0: None. None. Zero.
1: Have you interviewed him at any point in your career? No. I haven't. Interesting.
0: You uh, know, I was trying to, in that book, I was, I was helping Greg Garrison really tell his story. Uh, you know what what the trial looked from from his from his seat? What did he make of the
1: almost surreal defense that Tyson's attorney made the making the argument essentially that this person is so widely known as a kind of sexual predator that no woman would ever engage him in a date without knowing where it was headed. It was such an incredibly um wrong-headed decision, I thought.. Uh,
0: you know, a defense that is predicated on the assassinate, character assassination of your client is a, a, a <laughs> is a problem. In my mind, in my opinion, yeah, is a problematic defense. I, I mean, even if you win, you lose.
1: Right, right. The jury is going to think. I if I have kids out here, even if he didn't do this, do I really want this guy out outside, putting my family at risk?
0: Yeah, and, and you know, as a public figure, okay, it, it's 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 character assassination. It's you know his career. Though Tyson has you know has been a remarkable story of resilience. Uh, you know, there's been a number of incarnations of of Mike Tyson, and he's he's a, you know a fascinating individual. Uh, you know, I I'd love to talk to Tyson about the history of boxing. I, mm. You know. You know, he's—he's he's a. I think he's an incredibly thoughtful person who has had some extraordinarily interesting opinions, and you know, there's so many things he can discuss. But over the period of time, he's—you know—there's been some self-destructive, it seemed to me, tendencies, and you know, that's—that's that's amateur psychologizing. And I'm not trying to psychoanalyze him. I wouldn't do that with anybody. But you know, it's been evident in his career that. I'm sure there's things that he said that he wishes he could take back, but. Well,
1: getting you know, back to Ali, what was Ali like entering an arena? What was that kind of energy like?
0: Oh, it was pure theater. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was spectacular. I mean, Ali had the crowd with him. I felt I felt a little bit sorry for his opponent. Uh, you know, it for from for, for Spence. Uh, it, it it was it was a good fight. Uh, not a great fight, not a great fight, but at that stage in Ali's career, towards the end, to regain it, I hated to see him lose that fight. I watched it on television mm-hmm. or in close circle, whatever it was. I think it was on television when he lost to Spence in the first fight in, in Las Vegas, and it, it you know it it seemed like a sad end first career. Um, well,
1: let's. Why don't we get to this this film that I just watched? I was sent an advanced screener by Netflix, uh, based on your book, Blood Brothers, with Ali and Malcolm X. And uh, you know, my editor at Bloomberg. One of the first things he asked me when I'm reviewing it and Ken Burns' Eight Hours on Ali is, haven't the bones been picked <laughs> of this of this story? How many books have been written? How many films have been made? Documentaries. Um, and yet your story in particular, the Ali-Malcolm X relationship, has always been what I've zeroed in on the most as one of the most intriguing chapters in Ali's life. So I wonder how you got involved with the book and what you thought of the film.
0: Uh, two, two different questions. Yeah, I thought, I, th- I thought they did a great job. I thought the, the director, um, Marcus, did a phenomenal job, Marcus Clark in 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 telling the story um how did we do it you're right there's been so much written about al there's been so much written about malcolm x uh but we thought you know this is a great story my co-author and i johnny smith we thought this is this could be a really great story but a story told by historians doing what historians do getting into the archives Going through, going through newspaper articles, trying to follow this course of this relationship, which is a, kind of a secret relationship for for a large part of it. It's how do you get to this? Which means looking at FBI files, looking at boss files, uh, files from New York City police files. Uh, trying to say, okay, wh- who, what was happening? We have a sense of when they met because this is kind of public. There was an the autobiography of malcolm x um but you know what how did it work and it meant going to looking through to see if if there's any are there any pictures and like the messenger in, in the the newspapers of the nation of islam are there any pictures of ali being at rallies you know when did they meet here it, you know a, a scrap an article a mention here and taking you know we did literally a day by day uh, chart uh, of where Ali was virtually every day where Malcolm X was every day where did they cross over Uh, you know suddenly Malcolm X is in New York at the same time as the Doug Jones fight okay you know this is a chance that so it's sort of trying to reconstruct where the people were where they met and what was going on in Ali's life still Cassius Clay of course in Malcolm X's life the nation in the history of the nation of islam what was going on with elijah muhammad so it it was a a kind of historical reconstruction and nobody had tried that you know it it takes a while to do it it's it's hard work it's it's a lot of false ends but at the end i think you really you, you get something and you know it was a story of two people who were never really exactly what they seemed they went through. A series of different incantations. Uh, you know, you had Cassius Clay, representative of America at the Rome Olympics. Then you have the Louisville Lip, you know, very different characters. Then you have kind of this Cassius X and finally Muhammad Ali. You know, it's almost as if he, there's four different characters. Uh, you know, I, I, I was reminded, or I've been reminded, uh, I, I kept thinking about uh the t.s elliott love song of Jeff from proof rock i don't know if you're familiar with that it's poem. my dad's favorite poem Uh it's a great poem you know let us go then you and i while the evening is laid out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table let us go through certain half deserted streets muttering retreats to restless nights and one night cheap hotels sawdust restaurants with oyster shells streets the fall like a tedious argument of insidious intent lead to the question what is it let us make her visit anyway that's the beginning of it if you remember but in that poem there's he's talking about there's time there's time there's time for this time for that time to prepare the face to meet the faces that you meet you know that the idea that a person just isn't one person that a person is multiple people depending on who his audience is depending on who he's talking to or she's talking to i kept going through my mind uh, and you know, this is almost Malcolm X and Ali were like this. you know, they prepared the face to meet the faces that they meet. They were different in different situations. We're all different in different situations. But um, you know, that, that's what I was trying to get at. And it's not only Ali that went through these different phases, different faces, but it was Malcolm too. The Malcolm before prison, the Malcolm of prison, the Malcolm uh, in the nation of Islam, the Malcolm who's rejecting the nation of Islam, they're all very different people, and convincing people.
1: Right. So of,
0: that's, that's what sorry, we were ahead. trying to get at.
1: And I think you did really successfully. One, one item in the film that I found a little incomplete I guess, was when Dr. Cornell West makes the observation that these were two of the freest black men of the 20th century. And of course, I can see all the reasons to make that argument in terms of how they were outwardly vocal. Um, and yet, privately, with their relationship to the Nation of Islam, they were two tremendously imprisoned individuals. And I didn't feel that that argument was really explored particularly um, meaningfully, in the sense that uh, Malcolm X, of course, is assassinated by his own group with the Nation of Islam. Uh, Ali confessed to a reporter at one point, asked why he didn't leave the Nation of Islam, because they would have done the same thing to me that they did to Malcolm X. That doesn't sound like two of the freest African-Americans in the 20th century. That sounds like very much they're in a kind of trap And of course, the backstory of the Nation of Islam sounds a lot like Scientology militarized in a certain respect to me. Um, Ali also seemed to be a bit of a mascot for Elijah Muhammad, that when he was very much a fairweather friend of of Elijah Muhammad in terms of uh, Muhammad being staunchly against boxing, as was Malcolm X in many respects, too, until Ali won they both see an opportunity to to go with the momentum but it seemed as if like i was thinking about ali in the context of the nation of islam being a mascot much in the way tom cruise is for scientology in some respects is that fair
0: well you know if you're mascot, i would not use that word but it's certainly the most prominent convert uh Probably Tom Cruise is the most prominent convert. Ali, unquestionably, was the most prominent convert. And you know, I think both organizations probably used Ali or Tom Cruise to, to to publicize themselves. Okay, to win other converts. Now, the the irony with Ali is, I think Malcolm wanted to use Ali in the same way with his with the branch that he was moving into. Right. Uh, you know. Either way, Ali was going to be used. And either way, you know, when you talk about freedom, I, I agree with you 100%. You know, neither person, it was so hard to move outside of of their own orbit uh, to, to, to free themselves. I mean, it's almost impossible. And I don't think, I'm not sure Ali wanted to. Uh, for, he, he's he's the most politically important, unpolitical person ever, okay, if, if that's if that's possible. I mean... Yeah, his, his politics were always inconsistent. Right. Um, I don't think he thought a great deal about his politics. And, and he didn't want to be used. He didn't want to be a politician. Okay, he wasn't running for office. Uh, and, and he, but he would say what was on his mind. I think the Nation of Islam brought him, okay, here's my ideology. I don't have to think about it anymore. Right. You know, I've learned it by rote. Uh, and, and I can repeat it by rote. You know, people talk about Ali and, you know, the one thing is that Ali could listen to you and internalize what you were saying. And then he would say it the next day and it would sound good. And by the day after that, it was as if it came out of him originally. Uh, So often I would hear Ali and he would be giving a speech. It was just like it was Malcolm. It was word for word what Malcolm said or word for word what he heard on the record, you know, uh, uh... about the black man's hell type of thing uh you know uh, the farrakhan's record um and so you know the nation of islam provide him with a doctrine with something that he can follow it provide him with discipline i think he was as a boxer he was attracted to the discipline i think of the nation of islam uh, particularly the food of islam uh and you know this is what he did in the boxing ring. You know, he was disciplined. He was, he trained. He, and, and I think it provided a, a kind of a psychological comfort for
1: him. Right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. You were talking about, you know, him containing multitudes and, and the contradictions, but it's also interesting how America has reinvented Ali as well. There's a kind of blank canvas that America can project its own convenient views on Ali, especially as he becomes silent for really the yeah. last two decades, he becomes much more um, of utility to America to project a kind of past that maybe is a bit unearned in some respects.
0: Well, you know, after was about seventy-five when Elijah Muhammad dies and walsh Muhammad goes a different way, and Ali goes to a more orthodox religious position. Right. Um, you know, the culture wars that were Ali's culture wars of the '60s, particularly Vietnam, by the '90s, it's, it's starting to fade away. We have other foreign policy problems. Ali's used, misused. In the boycott of the 1980 Olympics with the with the Soviet Union, um, and and suddenly he's silenced by Parkinson and by what other problems he had, and he, he, he becomes benign, uh, almost benign in his silence, which to me was you know kind of taking advantage of him right. uh, that he, he's not saying anything, and that's the way of America, seeing white America seemed to want him. Uh, you know to be this benign image and so suddenly now he can advertise products he can sell things he can get money for this or that and you know it was I don't want to say sad ending because I don't think Ali was sad and you know I, I I saw him a couple times during that period and interacted with him a couple times during that period and he certainly was not a sad individual but the spark you know the Alley that that we knew during the nineteen sixties, the verbal alley, angry alley, funny alley—you know—we're gone. And you know, you, you had the movie on alley, which kind of, kind of soft pedals the hard part and emphasizes the soft parts, the nice parts. Uh, you know, there's almost a reinvention of Mojave Ali to fit an age of uh, more consensus, I guess.
1: It reminds me a bit of, I was always mystified in high school reading To Kill a Mockingbird because I don't know what it really says about race. I know that it projects onto the reader the misguided assumption that we all would be enlightened like the Finch family, if, were we there, as opposed to the mob. But their, their sense of enlightenment has no arc. It's never explained how they acquired this understanding of racism and to have an enlightened view. So it's an unearned kind of uh, compliment of the reader when you put yourself back into the time, as opposed to the, the moral complexity of race and how it's dealt with Huckleberry Finn, for example. Uh,
0: I've always yeah, you know, I like Kellen Mockingbird. I do too, but, I do too. <laughs> A lot of people when they think about it, they don't really think of the novel at all. They think of the movie, right? Which concentrates on the trial. Whereas that's just that's just part of the novel. It, you know, it's it's not the novel is not about that trial. It's you know, it's a novel of growing up in a maturation. Um, and maturation. and I think you're right, you know, where did this Alabama family uh, come from? You know, and, and maybe part of its appeal was that. Is was soothing. It, it it said to America, you know, these sentiments are just beneath the surface of, of the racism that they're seeing in the South. That you know that all Southerners, all Americans can be at at this Uh You know, it's 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 a nice thing to think about that we can all be as noble as who who played him in the movie as uh, Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck, yeah. Uh, you know, I can still see. They're selling glasses now. I was I, I was in an eyewear store uh, the other day. and They're selling the Annika Fitch glasses that Gregory Peck wore in the movie. You know. huh. make us all look kinder and gentler.
1: Yeah, and I, I just bring it up because Ali, early on, was somebody that spoke very fondly of George Wallace, was somebody that bragged about meeting with, with the Ku Klux Klan, was very much pro-segregationist talking about bluebirds go with bluebirds and redbirds go with redbirds and but that's malcolm
0: that's malcolm that's straight out of malcolm right i'm sorry interrupted interrupt
1: you no 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 you're but you're you're quite right it's it's interesting how ali i, I remember in mark cram's book ghosts of manila referred to him as a kind of chauncey gardner Like figure with politics and just everybody because he was so appealing and and attractive in so many respects you just you know swept under the rug anything that was inconsistent with how you wanted to view him it's fascinating how he was able to embody such a malleable figure and spirit for people
0: uh you know in in the documentary there's one great Quote from Ali, and Ali's talking. And he basically says anybody that opposes or, or goes against the Nation of Islam, against uh, the honorable Elijah Muhammad, should die or will die. You know, knowing what's going to happen to Malcolm X, that's a, that's chilling to me. Uh, yeah. And, and and this is you know Ali could be such a hard individual. It, you know, it's really incredible.
1: Well, and, and, you know, that that is a really key thing, is that for all of the ways in which we venerate Ali for his courage, um, betraying your best friend, and even Ali's brother is saying, he, uh, Malcolm was a fool to say the things he was saying about Elijah Muhammad. Well, you're saying he's a fool because he was telling the truth to power at the risk of his own life? That that's That's foolishness as opposed to bravery and courage that Ali lacked? In terms um, of being willing to, to acknowledge the truth and the hypocrisy of this mentor and
0: father figure, I I thought I I don't know what to say about that. You know, great truth. You know, he, he he did what he did. Uh, you know, he he was he was a good soldier when it came to the time when Malcolm was out. I mean, he turned his back on Malcolm, but but it sort of slowly it, it first. After the, after the fight, after the, list of the first Liston fight, um, and the nation of Islam is saying, Malcolm's out. Okay, he's been censored. He's out of the movement, essentially. I mean, there's that few-week period where, in Hardim, for example, where Ali and Malcolm are together. And they seem as close as ever. They seem good friends. And then suddenly, boom, the name Muhammad Ali comes out, and the separation is complete. You know, obviously, I don't know what people were saying to him in Chicago at the nation with the at the nation center of the Nation of Islam, but somebody was saying something to him. And right. he just leaves Malcolm. And Malcolm is is completely gone. Malcolm's idea was start a new movement, have Muhammad Ali as part of the movement, uh, attracting a whole new group of, of educated more sophisticated uh, African-Americans into our movement as opposed to kind of the, the jail uh, route that some people took to the Nation of Islam. And I can see, I, you, you can see that Malcolm was thinking this, that it was going to happen, and then suddenly it, it disappears. Hmm.
1: Um, why don't we go back, for, for me, the most fascinating boxer who ever lived by far was Jack Johnson. And I'm curious about uh, your process in encountering him as and and attempting to tackle him, in your book and and also the wonderful film that you participated in with Ken Burns, Jack Johnson, Unforgivable Blackness. Um, what drew you to Jack Johnson? When did he first come on your radar? And when did you contemplate um, embarking on that journey of writing his biography?
0: I'm sorry, I can't tell you the day, but I can I can tell you the moment. Um, I was going to do a book on kind of the significance of the heavyweight division, okay, of heavyweight boxers, kind of a a symbolic role that they play in America. You know, Eldridge Cleaver one time wrote in Soul and Ice that the heavyweight champion is the two-fisted testing ground of masculinity in America, and the heavyweight champion as a symbol is a real Mr. American. Hmm. I I lived through the age of Ali. I, I knew that was true, okay? Mm-hmm. I knew it was true for Joe Lewis. I, I I mean, I knew the significance of some of those people. So I had this book, I think I even was going to call it like a pocketful of mumbles or something like that. I, every title I've ever chosen for a book got changed before the book was published. So that I'm sure would, but you know, from the song, the Simon Garfunkel song, you know, in the caring sure. stands a boxer and a fighter buys trade and carries a reminder, anyway. Um, and so I, I was in Washington, DC for a short period of time. But I went to the National Archives and I said, you know, I I, you know, I was just gonna see there. I'd done a book on Jack Dempsey, I'd gone to National Archives, I'd gotten some pretty good material, nothing major, nothing major, but some interesting stuff. And so I had a day and I figured, okay, I'll go and it should be enough to get what I need. So I went to the National Archives and I said, you know. I'm interested in Jack Johnson. He had been accused of, a, convicted of a federal crime. I knew there had to be something there for on him. So do you have anything? And we started looking through with the person. And the woman said, yeah, we just actually declassified some documents on Jack Johnson. Uh, maybe it'd be interesting. Yeah, just recently de-class, declassified, sure, it'd be interesting. And they bring out, like, I don't know if you've ever been there, but they bring out these carts. With big boxes on them, bank of boxes full of material, you know, maybe six of them to a cart. They bring out like three carts of material. I'm saying, wait a second, wait, no, 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 you must, you got this confused. No, we just declassified it. And I started to look at the material and I I saw that, you know, that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, that's the predecessor of the FBI, had followed Johnson for several years. Writing up periodic, I mean, not daily, but close to daily reports on what he was doing, who he was with. You know, they're preparing this case against Jack Johnson. And it's just phenomenal material. And right then I said, copy all this, okay? I want to get a copy, be able to take it home and read it at my leisure. Uh, You know, it's it's going to take months to go through all this material. Uh, And right there I saw, you know, kind of the germ the, the heart, uh, of the book. Nobody else had looked at it. It was incredibly insightful to Johnson's life as well as America at the time. Hmm.
1: Has there ever been a, a more dynamic character in boxing than Jack Johnson, in your opinion?
0: He was sui generous. That's for sure. I, you know, yeah. I'm thinking about it. And I, you know, I, I, I think of Ali and I think of Joe Lewis, who I think is a very underappreciated and under considered individual and, you know, a guy like Mike Tyson. Uh, But Jack Johnson was was unique. Um, And and Jack Johnson, we talked about freedom a second ago. May have been the freest of the of of the heavyweight champions, you know, to live You know, Jack Johnson lived the life that he wanted to live okay he didn't seem to be trapped in anybody else's agenda you know no you know whether it was black white racist integrations nobody was able to trap jack johnson into their agenda he he lived by his own and so joe there's a a great story of jack johnson you know that's told and, and I love the story, it was part of the folklore of Jack Johnson, it wasn't true, but it, you know, there was a folklore that grew up around Jack Johnson. And supposedly Jack Johnson's going through some dusty part of Jim Crow south. And, and he's, he's like he always is, he's speeding. And he went through his life speeding, he ends up dying in a car wreck. But he's speeding, he's stopped by some country sheriff, and he said, sheriff says, well, you were going pretty fast there, boy, weren't you? Jack Johnson says, yeah, I suppose I was. Well, that's, that's going to cost you. It's going to cost you $50. Jack Johnson says, fine. And he pulls out a roll, you know, money, a roll to fit the hand of a heavyweight champion. Hmm. He peels off a $100 bill and he gives it to the sheriff. Sheriff says, I can't make change for a $100. Jack Johnson says, don't need change. Coming back, coming through, the, back the same way as I went through, you know. amazing. That, that's Jack Johnson. It's it, I'm doing it my way. Amazing. Well, and then we
1: have this huge reaction to Jack Johnson, which is Joe Lewis. So I wonder, what were the unique challenges of approaching somebody as complex as what Joe Lewis represented to America, not just boxing, totally transcended boxing?
0: Now, Joe Lewis is interesting, okay? I mean, he, we first met Joe Lewis in 1935 when suddenly he comes out of nowhere i mean he had he had some early fights in detroit and chicago and and he was doing well and then he ties in with mike jacobs the the top promoter at the time and um he comes to new york and he fights he fights primo canera in 35 and you know primo canera huge fighter not a good fighter but a huge fighter big uh former heavyweight champion and joe lewis just knocks him cold and just destroys him and he beats max Barry. i mean he has all these fights early fights and the first thing he had to be was not jack johnson okay so i mean you know it's a story often told that joe lewis you know he was given roles you don't do this you don't you don't ever get photographed with a white woman alone you don't go alone into a bar you know you You you, you're humble. You don't get no fixed fights. Uh, You you don't deride white fighters. You know you're you're mannerly. You're all these things. Okay. Um, And then he becomes famous, and and then he becomes a symbol for America. Okay, Uh, a symbol of democracy for America, Uh, a country that's overcome racism. You know, he defeats Max Schmeling. He goes into the he goes into the military. He fights two fights where he doesn't even take his prize money. He donates it, he donates it to the Navy Relief Fund and an Army Relief Fund. And, and he becomes kind of a, a spokesman for integration, for the lack of a race problem in America, really during World War II. There's a famous poster of Joe Lewis, and he's in a fighting position, he's in a uniform, he has a gun, a bayonet, It's kind of a bayonet charge towards somebody. That poster, in World War II, there were very few images of black soldiers and posters of a black soldier in uniform, none in a fighting position. You know, that kind of says that Jack, Jack, excuse me, Joe Rose was something special, something different. Um, but in, while he's, too, as this poster child, behind the scenes, He's working for all sorts of change in America. He's complaining about integration. He's working through the the, the, the uh, person that he knows in the uh, in the Army Department of Army, of the Army, and Truman Gibson, and and he's trying to enact change. And afterwards, he's looking for change. I mean, he's he's, he's a complex. He, he, everything seems smooth on the surface, but you he, know, he's like there's pedaling underneath the surface. Hmm. To keep it. so, and then he becomes involved with all sorts of different people from Richard Wright to Lena Horn to Paul Robeson. And, and then it seems like after the war, every single person that he was involved in that supported the American war effort was attacked by the government. Paul Robeson was, Richard Wright was, uh, Jack uh, Joe Lewis was, you know, the whole group of them. It's kind of interesting,
1: yeah. I remember that. Incredibly haunting image that that Martin Luther King mentions um, in his book about testing out a new form of capital punishment and drop, exactly. dropping in the gas pelt and them recording the the effects and hearing the the refrain "Save me, Joe Lewis, save me, Joe Lewis." Exactly right.
0: Probably an apocryphal story. Probably, but a good. <laughs> I mean, people have gone back and looked at that story and. It, it, it wasn't true as told exactly, but it there there were some elements of truth in the story. Um, you know, the person had talked about Joe Lewis. But yeah, I mean, Joe Lewis was, was a savior. It's, it's interesting. In the 1930s, I think, you know, there were so many songs written about Joe Lewis. There's a compendium, an album, uh, I say album, CD, with all the songs on it, with a number of them, you know, maybe 15, 20 songs. Uh, and and you know this kind of savior mentality, the importance, blues songs, all types of songs about Joe Lewis. I mean, there's Joe Lewis was just an amazing person, hmm. uh, and and, and, he, and he was he was funny, he had a great sense of humor, and
1: strikingly uh, beautiful as a man. I mean, just oh, a, unbelievable. Looks
0: unbelievable. like a model. Gates Lewis was writing a profile on him one time, and Joe Lewis flew first class. You know, he would. Get first, they would get first-class tickets for him. And so police had to pay for first-class tickets. And he was complaining, low and Joe Lewis said, you know, what's the difference? Wi-Fi first class, uh, you know, from New York to L.A.? And Joe Lewis says, well, you get there first. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You're sitting there first class and he pulls in there first. Uh, but he, he, was, he was a great guy. Oh, that's great.
1: Uh, last one I want to touch on uh, is Jack Dempsey. Another fascinating time in terms of the backdrop in which he fought and was this face of not just boxing, but I think sports in the country. Um, what drew you to Jack, Jack Dempsey as a character?
0: I was interested in the 1920s. And this was when I was in graduate school, and this was actually it was my first book it was my dissertation. And, you know, there were there was a great deal of talk Back then, in history, about writing history from the bottom up, hmm. that history had been written from the top down. You know, when we thought of history, we thought of presidents, industrialists. You know, we, we thought of a white male stratum on top, and that's who it was written about. And so, a lot of people are saying, no, 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 no. We've got to write history from the bottom up. We've got it, We've got to write about. The poor about African Americans, discrimination. We've got to write about labor. You know the the course of labor. The, you know and 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 so people started writing. Life stuffs coming out in late, okay. And you sometimes you get a feeling that if you went into a working class bar in Hoboken, you know the people were sitting around discussing Marx. Um, but the reality I knew is that people were. If you go into a bar or any kind, you know you're likely to find a lot of people talking about sports. And so, what do I kind of ask myself? What does an athlete uh, tell us about a moment in time? Time. I'm looking at it's 1920s. So I decided to do okay. Let's let's look at Joe x uh, Cholms. Let's look at Jack Dempsey's life. And you know what does it tell us about America at a particular time? And this is a time when. Sports is coming to its own. You said Jack Dempsey's the face of sports. Jeez, it's a golden era of sports. You know, you have Babe Ruth, you have Big Bill Tilden in tennis, you have Bobby Jones in golf, Red Grange in football, Jack Dempsey, Gene Tunney, Harry Greb, I mean, Benny Leonard, a whole group of boxers. So I I picked Dempsey because I, I was interested in boxing and you're looking at one person, you're not looking at a team and you know this is when boxing explodes you know before this boxing is largely an outlawed sport in most states in america you know there's a few places in the west reno and such that fights are held It's very problematic in these the types of fights that would held, decisions everything but the walker law really kind of is the initial law that allows boxing in in new york and it becomes a huge spectator sport where it hadn't been before, and Jack Dempsey was molded into the hero that uh, America was looking for in the 1920s, which was really kind of a more conservative kind of hero. And so that was a But and I, you know, I met Jack Dempsey. I talked to him uh, several wow. times. Uh, the first time at Jack Dempsey's bar, which you probably, you probably don't remember. You two remember? Never two been. Remember, but, Never been. But, it had that great mural of Dempsey fighting uh, Jess Willard, and the mural's now in the National Portrait Gallery. I often wonder what happened to it. If you're ever in Washington, D.C., on the third floor, it's this incredible mural. And Dempsey was would sit in the front front table, uh, right at where the the glass window was. People could look in at him. I mean, it, it was a great experience, but it was. It, it, it was it was a, a great project to work on.
1: Hmm. Uh, my last question is just: I've interviewed a series of biographers. I I love talking to people involved in your profession. Um, what What do you think makes a great biographer? And what do you think you bring to it specifically? Uh,
0: you know, I think a great biographer has to care about their subject. Uh, you know, they have to try to be impartial, but they have to care about the subject. I couldn't imagine writing a biography of somebody that I truly disliked, okay, that was, you know, going at and dealing with a person every day as you have to in a biography. Um, I think number one is be aware of the small stories, okay, that, you know, the small stories add up to a complete individual, okay, it, so it's, it's, it's use of detail uh i believe very strongly in following in the footsteps of uh of, of the person that you're dealing with you know go where they went see what does it look like from the ground up you know wh- what were their homes like what were the regions and the country they were from or where they were from uh do i have time for one sto- a story that will take a couple minutes please okay let me give you an example There's a guy that I I like I called Richard Holmes, he's a biographer, he wrote a book called Footsteps. It's a series of short uh, pieces, short essays, like four short essays in this book about different people. And it's it's an exploration of the people he's talking about, but also it's an exploration of the nature of biography. Uh, And one of the people he deals with is Robert Louis Stevenson in a particular period of his time. And so, Robert Louis Stevenson had written a book early in his career called uh, uh, "Travels Through the Savannah with My Donkey" or with a donkey, something of that nature. I have it over here. I could look at it. Um, and what Stevenson's going through a tough period of time, kind of. Some problems with with uh, uh, one of the, with a woman that he was in love with, but it wasn't going exactly right. Problems with his parents. You know, what are you going to do with your life? Uh, he wants to be a poet. You know, a writer that doesn't seem to be going anyplace. And so he, he took this trip through the Cevennes in, in in France. It was kind of the sort of the Appalachia of France. And he had a donkey with him. And so Holmes at that time was con was fascinated by this book and he was going through many of the same problems he was he was in college he was going to be a poet He was going through the same problems as robert louis stevenson so he decided to take the same trip with with robert louis stevenson that stevenson took. he didn't have a donkey but he maybe a dog went with him or something but he traveled and he read he would be reading as he was traveling the diaries that Robert Louis Stevenson left. The, you know, his the book that he left, uh, thinking about the problems, staying by himself, you know, staying out under the stars most of the time. And, you know, who knows what else was going on? It was the 60s. I don't know what he was smoking. But anyway, he started to dream of Robert Louis Stevenson. He's going to see Robert Louis Stevenson. It's going to happen. He crosses into this town, Langonia, and he's convinced. He's crossing over a bridge into Langone he's convinced he's going to meet Robert Louis Stevenson. Hmm. He's absolutely sure that this is going to happen. He starts walking up, pacing up the streets, looking in in stalls, looking in, 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 in brasseries, looking for Robert Louis Stevenson. And then suddenly he looks upriver and he sees another bridge. But this bridge is destroyed. It just has the two ends of the bridge. And he realizes that's the bridge that Robert Louis Stevenson... Came into Langonia from long story, to, to make a point. Okay, you know, as a biographer, we we're constantly in ch- chasing the person that we're interested in. Okay, we're carrying on a one-sided conversation with him. We're reading the documents, we're reading letters, we're reading diaries, we're reading whatever we can get, and we're you know we're trying to build this person who is absolutely as real as possible. But we know we're never going to meet him. Well unless you do a biography of a modern person, which is, I, I've, I've done, but like a Jack Johnson. I'm never going to meet Jack Johnson. But talk to people that had talked to him, that who had met him. I, re, I read things that he wrote. I I, I listened to what he said in his, when he was tried for the Mann Act conviction. So it's 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 chasing a, a figure that you're never going to get, but try to get that figure as, pos, as clear as possible. Does that make any sense to you?
1: Oh, it absolutely does. And I, I wonder... Uh, Because I'm very fascinated by this also, retracing the steps is something uh, that's a big deal for me, making pilgrimages to do that, to do exactly as you're saying, to make the person more fully formed and the time in which they lived more fully formed.
0: and You're a perfect example of it. I mean, your, your book on boxing in Cuba and Hemingway and, uh, you know, I've never been to Cuba. I've never been to Hemingway's home. I've been to, you know, Hemingway's homes in Paris and, and other places, but never Cuba. Uh, Key West. But, you know, you that's what you did. I mean, you went into footsteps. You went into the gyms where they trained. And yeah. you, you trained with the, some of these Olympic gold medal fighters. I mean, yeah, I mean, not and in that's a, a perfect case. of Following the footsteps.
1: Yeah, it, no, I mean, it, it, it is. There's something about it that's kind of magical to get lost in these lives that resonate with you early on, is what you imagine them to be, and then as close as you possibly can trying to enter them. Um, but I am I am curious, just as a, a actual last question. Um, I read a book not long ago that was about a woman who spent, I think, seven years trying to research how much of Van Gogh's ear did he actually chop off. That was the whole exploration. I thought this is, on the one hand, kind of amazing and kind of patently absurd at the same time. Like, does this really matter? But she finally found definitive evidence from Dr. Gaucher who had done a little sketch of exactly how much ear had been cut off And she submitted it to the Van Gogh Museum, and they said, we now will acknowledge the whole ear was chopped off. And she broke out into tears. Um, It's clearly the most important moment of her life. Um, For you, have there been any moments like that where there's the historical record as it stands, and you have been able to contribute through your investigation some new understanding, some new insight that slightly reshapes or recontextualizes one of these figures that you've um, been in search of
0: Wow that's a t- that's a difficult question I you know I, I hope that the biographies I've written have put the people that I ha- have been interested in, in in a proper historical setting okay I I, I hope that I have done that um, how much of an ear of a Hollander Lander's ear that Mike Tyson bite off, I, I, I've never taken uh, a, a shot at that one. But that seems like a long time to look for the answer to that question, which I would agree with you, how important is that one? But uh, it's, it's sort of interesting. Yeah. But you know, to me, it's, 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 it, everything's in the details. You know, it's, it's the stories that you can that you can bring, that you can tell, that people can get a feel for that person, what it was like to sit down with a person. You know, a guy by the name of T. Harry Williams wrote a long book, like 800 and some pages or so, on T. Harry, on, on Yui Long. And, you know, how, how do you get a person to read that long of a book on Huey Long? It's a long book, unless they're a historian. And I remember the first, like the first paragraph in it, he talks about it in I think 1928, Huey Long was running for governor of, of uh, Louisiana, and Huey Long was from North Louisiana, uh, which is Protestant country, and he's running in the South, which is Catholic country. And His campaign manager said to him, said, "Now, Huey, uh, remember you're going to be talking to Catholics now. You're not up in Winfield Parish, up in uh, uh in North Louisiana." And Huey said, "Fine." So he gave he would give a talk, stump talk, wherever he gave. He said, you know, first day, he said that he remembered Sundays up in North Louisiana, that he would get up at five o'clock in the morning or whatever the time was, feed the horse to get to take his, his, his Baptist grandparents to church. And he said, and then I come home, and I just have time to water the horse down or what have you, before I took my Catholic grandparents to Mass. And, and, you know, it made quite an impression. These Cajuns are saying, well, we didn't know he was half Catholic. Oh, that's fantastic. It had, it made it had a wonderful reception. his campaign, campaign manager asked him that evening, said, you know, you you've been holding out on us. Well, I, we didn't know that you had, I didn't know that you had Catholic grandparents. And you Long said, don't be a damn fool. We didn't even have a horse. Okay, you know, that story is, that little detail is, okay, ends justifying means, okay. Uh, uh, and justify getting someplace um it, it, it leads you into the story leads you into a biography it relaxes you it makes you smile it, it you know that this is this is what makes good biography good stories
1: do you have a favorite uh work of history or biography that stands out for you on a personal level
0: you know a book that i i, I really loved and anyway, i I can't say it's my favorite, but I, I really love. It. It's a book called Edie, about Edie Sedgwick,
1: huh.
0: uh, and it, it was done where you know, she was the Andy Warhol pinup girl, sure, uh, and and it was done through a series of interviews with people that knew her, and then arranged to tell her entire biography for her. so this entire biography is written you know through the voices of other people, and I I, I I, you know, I love that. I thought it was, you know, a great experiment.
1: She's a fascinating but, character, The you know, blue blood, Ivy League, pedigree of her family, and then in the factory and dying so young with the, the yeah. heroin overdose and Warhol abusing her.
0: The family goes way back and it tells the whole story of that family. And it's like the fall of the House of Ushers, you know, I mean, it's, it's this collapse of this this distinguished family. And I've I've visited where they're they're buried in what's called Sedgwick Pie in uh, Stockbridge, uh, Massachusetts. And it's arranged in concentric circles. So on Judgment Day, when Sedgwicks all arise, they'll look across at each other. They'll see only other Sedgwicks. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: you ever read, uh, my favorite is probably a, a recent one that I discovered from 1955 called A Night to Remember. By Walter Lord about the Titanic, yeah. I mean, just. Walter
0: Lord was good.
1: Boy, he, you know, it's jaw dropping how good this goddamn thing is. Totally blew me away.
0: He wrote one also on the Alamo, and and I've used pages of it, and I've said now to students, read this. Look how he uses verbs here. I mean, it's just it's just an amazing. He was an amazing writer.
1: The introduction to A Night to Remember, talking about that there was a book that basically almost play-by-plays what happened to the Titanic ten years before it happened. Uh, and just having a three-paragraph introduction of mentioning this bizarre book uh, was one of the most inspired introductions I've ever read in my life anywhere. Well,
0: I'll, I'll take a look at it. It was, uh, Yeah, he, he's, he's a wonderful writer.
1: Yeah. Randy, I really appreciate your time today and and look forward in the future to some more chats.
0: Okay. I hope you got something.
1: Oh, I did. Thank thank you so much, Randy. Take care. Okay. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón-Swebe and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.